You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host. And once again, I'm seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're talking about a favorite figure in New Testament studies, Paul, who we know today as a prolific letter writer. But how did he write his letters? Did he have his own kind of style and such? Did he follow traditional rules of format for writing in the Greco-Roman era. For that, I decided to bring on the author of the book called The Ancient Letter Writer, an introduction to epistolary analysis, and his name is Dr. Jeffrey Weinman. Who is he? He's a professor of New Testament at Calvin Theological Seminary, and he's taught for the past 25 years. He's a sought-after speaker, able to communicate where the truths of the Bible in an interesting, contemporary, impactful manner. He's published five books, Neglected Endings, The Significance of the Pauline Letter Closings, and Anti-Bibliography of First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, and a commentary, recently completing a major commentary on First and Second Thessalonians, and his fifth and latest book is what we're talking about today, Paul, the Ancient Letter Writer, and Introduction to Epistolary Analysis, and it came out in the fall. He's also the author of numerous scholarly articles, academic essays, and book reviews. He has taught courses all over the world, Hungary, Greece, Italy, South Korea, Kenya, Taiwan, the Philippines, and South Africa. He's an active member of several academic societies, lectures overseas. He's got biblical study tours to Greece, Turkey, Israel, Jordan, and Italy. He conducts intensive preaching seminars for pastors and preaches widely in the Christian Reformed Church, as well as many other churches in both the USA and Canada. He and his wife, Bernice, have been married for 33 years. They have four children and five very cute grandkids. Dr. Wama, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. All right, thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure for me to be talking with you today. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing today? Well, you provided them with some of the technical or facts of my life, so Uh, I can go back a little bit and say that I'm a child of Dutch immigrants after the Second World War to Canada, to eastern Ontario. And growing up in an immigrant community, I think, uh, formed and shaped me in uh, important ways. I also grew up in a strong uh, Christian home with uh, emphasis on Christian education and involvement in the local church. I took, I think, some of that for granted. But uh, after some experiences and the working of the Holy Spirit in my life, I committed my life to Christ as a young man, and that uh, had an impact on my my, uh, vocation. Uh, I was, at the time, thinking about doing, and in fact, I was training for doing stuff in uh, media, in uh, radio broadcasting and television, and then I hesitantly felt a call to ministry. I wasn't sure what kind of ministry uh, that would take, you know, whether it be uh, regular parish ministry or you know, some kind of media ministry, or as it turned out, I didn't expect that to be the case, more of a teaching ministry. So uh, after uh, uh, doing pre-seminary studies in uh, Canada, I moved to uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, where our denominational seminary, Calvin Theological Seminary, was located. And uh, I graduated with an MDiv and a THM there. And then instead of taking a church, uh, and beginning a parish ministry, I started a Ph.D. program, a somewhat well-known evangelical scholar by the name of Richard Longenecker, and he was located in uh, Toronto. And so uh, our family moved back to Canada, and for five years during the Ph.D. days, I, um, I served as also an interim pastor for vacant churches, and I also taught half-time at a Christian liberal arts college in Hamilton, Ontario, Redeemer College. And so those are busy uh, busy years because I was a full-time Ph.D. student. I was 
half-time uh, professor at this uh, Christian college, and I was half the full-time interim pastor in various churches. And then after doing that for five years, um, God called me to what in my circles is called the New Jerusalem, and that's Grand Rapids, Michigan, the very place where I had been trained for ministry, and I was uh, called to be a professor of New Testament. And uh, I've been there, as you indicated earlier, I'm starting, or I'm in the middle of my 20 fifth uh, year, and so time uh, has gone by uh, quickly. But I've, uh, I, you know, I, I do a lot of other things, and so um, I don't know if people can uh, remember all the things you, you uh, mentioned. So uh, teaching, of course, is a first and foremost responsibility, but I do a lot of preaching and speaking in churches, um, you know, probably 75 plus times a year, and that's good to connect with uh, people in the local uh, churches and in the local pew, but also, uh, most of my students at Calvin Seminary are training for parish ministry, and so it's a good reminder for me of the kind of ministry to which most students are aspiring, and it helps me, I think, uh, do something important, and that is kind of connect the academic world with the church community. Uh, that move I often talk about as the move from the then and there of the text to the here and now of uh, today. And uh, so, so that, that also gets me into a lot of adult education circumstances, um, seminars for pastors. I, I've got some series, you know, that they can kind of uh, attend a one or two day intensive seminar and kind of steal the information and turn it into sermon series. Um, uh, biblical tours are a big part of my life, too. They started off one a year and then two a year, and sometimes it's three or four, and so uh, they're kind of study tours. I have one to Greece, one to Turkey, uh, one to Italy, and then one to Israel and Jordan. And uh, uh, those are a combination of, you know, showing people the biblical sites and explaining the texts that are found or related to those sites. And again, doing so in what I would call a user-friendly way, in a way that... Um, you know, the lay people uh, and others can readily understand. So that's a big part of my life. And, of course, there's some uh, writing and research and publication. And uh, you brought me on to talk about my uh, fifth book. But I do attend academic meetings and give those more uh, academic-type papers that end up in uh, academic journals or in collected readings of one kind or another. But there's more to life than all of that, uh, so I, I'm, I'm busy with my family and uh, with my kids and grandkids, and so uh, we're, we're happy for that, and uh, I prefer to avoid the busyness of cities, and I like the uh, quiet of outside, and so my wife and I prefer to do, you know, hiking and uh, things like that in our, in our free time. So that's, anyway, that's a little, uh, a little introduction to, uh, to Jeff Wyma. Now, I'm looking at your uh, list of books that you've written here, and all of them are connected somehow with Paul, the letter writer, including one on the significance of letter closings, which I think a lot of people probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about. But what, why is that you're so interested in Paul as a letter writer? Well, um, that's a, a good question, and actually it's, uh, it's a question that people maybe need to reflect on, and it really goes... It goes to a foundational, a more deeper conviction about not just what the Bible says, but how the Bible says it. Or, again, differently, not just believing that Scripture is the Word of God, which it is, but it's also the Word of God given to us through the Word or the words of men. Mm -hmm. In other words, taking seriously that um, the biblical writers were not just mere uh, vehicles through whom the Holy Spirit spoke. In other words, it wasn't like the invasion of the body snatchers, uh, but actually uh, in some profoundly mysterious way, the Holy Spirit worked with the very human biblical writers with the result that Scripture, again, is on the one hand fully the Word of God, but on the other hand fully the Word of men. And if you take seriously that the biblical authors were were genuine human uh, beings, then that opens the door to how important it is to know about who they are uh, in terms of their character, their personality, the historical time in which they lived, 
the historical circumstances of the communities to which they address their writings and all of that. And if you are convinced about, so to say, not just the divine side of Scripture, but also the human side of Scripture, then I think um, you want to take very seriously uh, what biblical scholars often refer to as the question of genre, and that's the idea of what kind of writing you're dealing with. And so even though the biblical message comes to us in one uniform book, that one message in that one uniform book comes to us in a variety of different genres or forms. And so, uh, you know, you need to know something about poetry if you're dealing with the Psalms or actually almost up to a third of the Old Testament. And you need to know something about um, historical books, even though no books of the Bible are pure history, they're more theological history, uh, if you're dealing with apocalyptic, revelation, or other parts of Daniel, you need to know something about that. And then now getting to Paul, uh, Paul wrote letters, and, uh, and that means uh, it would be helpful, and not only helpful, but important for the contemporary reader to know something about the genre of letters uh, and the degree to which Paul uh, borrows from other letters of that day, and then also the degree to which we can then determine he's doing something unique and different. So, so when I first started off my uh, biblical studies, I didn't think about all of those things, frankly. So um, I, 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 maybe in a kind of simplistic way, I, I didn't really believe, of course, the Bible fell down from heaven in the King James Version with red letters and maps in the back, but, but uh, I didn't take seriously enough um, the historical person, Paul, and the importance of genre, in this case, letters. And uh, it was during my seminary studies that that started a little bit, and then it continued in my Ph.D. studies, too. And so that, that, that first book that I wrote, which is really my uh, Ph.D. thesis, which was then uh, subsequently published, really does uh, that, right? It looks at the letter closings, and it wasn't a bad subject to write on because of Biblical scholars had kind of ignored uh, the letter closings and I think assumed that there was nothing really significant or important in them. Right. And, uh, and so when you get to commentaries, partly probably because the commentary writer was just frankly exhausted and happy to see the end and kind of sprinted to uh, the close in those last few verses. But there, was a, there, there had been a tendency, and there's some other reasons too which I could explain, but for a variety of reasons, biblical scholars, and I think Christians too, had kind of ignored the endings of letters. And they probably do the same for the openings, too, thinking that, hey, you know, it's just like, sincerely, Paul, you know, nothing big, nothing important, nothing significant there. So already in my Ph.D. studies, I look carefully at letter closings, and the subtitle already gives you a clue to the thesis of now my newest book. So the, it was called The Pauline Letter Closing, The Significance, right? Uh, the Significance of the Pauline Letter Closings. In other words, I believed that uh, Paul was a skilled letter writer who would borrow from inherited letter writing conventions of his day, but he felt the freedom under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to expand, to adapt, to edit those closings, how or why, but in a way that echoed, in a way that summarized, in a way that pointed back to the major topics that he had addressed earlier in the body of the letter. Anyway, so that was my thesis, and I think it was published in uh, 1994. And uh, it was kind of picked up a lot because, as I said, no one had really written extensively on that. And of course, uh, commentary writers, you know, when they got to the, uh, on letters, that is, when they got to the end of a polling letter, then um, some of them would stumble across my work and, uh, and then might find that uh, helpful in trying to explain what Paul is doing in the end of his letters. So I could say more, but I'll, I'll stop and see if you have a question at this point. Uh, I'm counting that, for instance, today we don't write letters so much as we usually write emails. Right. So if I'm sitting there and I'm writing an email, like that's almost kind of a generic since the email that I would have sent to you ask you to come on my show, I don't sit down and think, okay, now I have to write the introduction, then I have to write this part, I have to write this part. I mean, I know the way I'm supposed to write, but it's kind of a subconscious thing. And such. Did, did Paul have in his mind also subconsciously probably a way that letters were generally written in the ancient world? 
Well, uh, I would say not subconscious. I think it was a little more overt. It was a little more upfront in his uh, thinking. Now, before I get to Paul, I mean, I, I should highlight for you that even today, whether it's a letter or an email, we still have to be kind of careful with the um, either the letter writing conventions or the email conventions that we use. For instance, if I'm sending an email to my wife and I end it um, sincerely, uh, you know, she would, you know, she might be thinking, "Hey, you know, I thought we had a good marriage. You know, is, am I missing something here?" Right. So it's interesting. Even today, we have to be careful about the letter writing conventions we use because we don't want them to send the wrong message. We want our writing letter conventions or email uh, conventions to kind of fit the nature of the relationship we have with the other person. I have that writing emails to scholars still today, frankly. I mean, um, there are many, uh, many biblical scholars that are not very uh, evangelical, that are not very conservative. And and so when I write an email, I have to say to myself, now, am I going to choose a, 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 a formula at the end that's overtly Christian, or should I tone it down and use something that's neutral, right? If, should I say in Christ or with Christian greetings or something like that? I know that for some scholars, they're like, uh, oh, this, this is a sign that Wyma is some ultra-raving fundamentalist, and, you know, fundamentalists don't do good scholarship, and... I mean, it may sound silly to some of your hearers, but, but those are the biases that exist. So, so uh, all of these are contemporary examples to say that still today, too, we have to be careful with the letter writing or email conventions that we use to make sure that they support rather than undermine the message that we're trying to uh, say. Now, getting back to Paul now, which you started off with, um, so, so every letter of the ancient world had at least three parts. Every letter had an opening, which was very fixed. Uh, and then they had a body, and then they had a closing. And uh, the openings, again, uh, were pretty standard. You always began with your name first, unlike today where we put our name at the end of the letter. Back then you put your name right up front. The only exception is, is if you would write to somebody who was more powerful than you, and you were maybe asking a favor of them, a letter of petition, then you might almost, in a sense, butter up the person by putting their name first. So, so you have first the name of the author, and then you have the name of the recipient, and then you have a greeting. Every letter, short or longish in the ancient world, follows this structure. And it's not surprising, then, that Paul does exactly the same thing. But he doesn't just blindly borrow, he Christianizes the letter opening. So, so this shows the skill of Paul and the freedom he obviously felt to expand or, to use my verb a minute ago, to Christianize the secular greeting that he inherited of that, of that day. So, uh, for instance, the greeting of that day, if I could explain it for a minute, in, in, in Greek... Um, it was a, a, a word which would be pronounced like this, harain, harain. And uh, harain, uh, maybe even to your hearers, sounds like a Greek word, haris, which is the word for grace. And so most people believe that Paul takes a secular greeting, harain, and he Christianizes it. He uses the Greek word haris, uh, grace. And then, wait a minute, some of us will know he says grace and peace, and peace, of course, is a typical Jewish greeting. In Hebrew, of course, it would be shalom. In uh, Greek, it would be uh, Arane, or in English, we get the woman's name, Irene. And so it looks quite clear to uh, most of us Pauline folk that Paul takes a secular greeting and he cleverly uh, Christianizes it and does so in a way that he, he has a stereotypical Christian Greek greeting, grace, and he has a stereotypical Christian Jewish greeting, peace, and uh, that now is used in the opening greeting for all of his uh, letters. So, so uh, I don't think that we should, uh, we should imagine Paul kind of subconscious. I mean, uh, I think this is a little more overt. This is a little more upfront in terms of his, uh, his intentionality. And I could give you lots more examples, and you only need to ask. Yeah. One thing I think we want, I want to get on also about this, with Paul's lines, we talk about how Paul wrote this, but how much of this do you think he was also directly involved at first? We've had Randy Richards on our show a few times. Mm. And he wrote his uh, 
dissertation on Paul's use of secretaries, and everyone used a secretary back in less explicitly saying some of Paul's letters. So when we talk about Paul's line, are we often talking about Paul writing or a secretary writing? What, what do we mean? So, um, okay, so uh, you're right. Secretaries, or the technical word is an amanuensis. Mm-hmm. Uh, a secretary and amanuensis was used a lot in the ancient world. It wasn't used all the time, but it certainly was used a lot. It was common, and therefore it's not surprising that at least in six of Paul's letters, he clearly used a secretary. How do we know that? Well, we know it because in five of his letter closings, he talks about greeting or writing, quote, in my own hand. And um, that's actually an unusual formula in the ancient world because most letters... um, uh, it would be very obvious to the uh, the recipient of the letter that the the letter uh, had been dictated in one hand, and then it was common for the author to take over. By the way, we call that an autograph, not our signing your name, but autograph literally in Greek means to self-write, to write it yourself. And so there was no real need in the ancient world to indicate that you had taken over from the secretary and you were writing the last couple of lines or the last line of the letter in your own hand because people could see the visual change in handwriting. And we have lots of um, papyrus letters from the ancient world where that's the case. But Paul knows that his letters are going to be read to a broader audience. Right. Won't all see that. And so he, he I think, uh, anticipates this. And so he spells out for the audience that he has switched over. So five times in the letter closings, he makes reference to in my own hand. And then um, another very interesting case is in the letter closing of Romans, the letter carrier, so to say, sticks his head out of the text um, because we suddenly hear this in uh, Romans 16. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And, uh, you know, the modern reader might be like, wait a minute, I thought Paul was writing to me. I thought Paul was talking to me. Well, Paul was, and Tertius is his secretary or an amanuensis, but at the end, um, Tertius um, takes a minute to also greet uh, greet his uh, his audience. So now the next question is okay. So we first established the fact, and you mentioned Randy Richards, right? right. Uh, about how Paul used or Randall for Randy Richards, right? Who used um, uh, a secretary in amanuensis. The next question is um, what kind of freedom did a secretary have? And that is a question that can't be answered with any certainty at all, right? So um, I think, if I remember right, uh, Randy argues that there's a range. So uh, on the one end of the spectrum would be almost dictation, uh, a little bit like the old model where you have the secretary with headphones and the, the boss has earlier dictated something on a tape and the secretary word for word writes it down. And then the other end of the spectrum would be like me going to the administrative assistant at my school and and saying something like, uh, would you please write a letter to so-and-so church thanking them for the hospitality they showed me last week? And so then she writes out the letter. I mean, she chooses the words, what to say. But the important point is I'll then look at that letter. And um, if I sign it, then I'm, so to say, taking ownership of everything in there. And so the purpose of an autograph then for Paul, whether he used a secretary or not, and we're assuming he did use a secretary for at least six of his letters, and he probably did for all of them. I mean, that's at least uh, something that's plausible. We can't say for sure. But the fact that Paul ends in an autograph means that he he takes responsibility regardless of the role that the secretary played in that particular context. So um, so I, I, I think that's important to keep in mind. But here shouldn't uh, draw the conclusion that, well, wait a minute, um, you know, the secretary had complete freedom to do whatever they wanted and, uh, you know, would deviate from whatever Paul maybe actually really thought. Or, no, no, there's accountability, and Paul isn't going to sign either on or off, if you will, on the letter unless he's uh, agreeing fully with the contents of the, uh, of the letter. Now, I like to remind everyone, when you're listening to the People Barter's podcast, probably we're going to be going an hour a day. Uh, if you're listening next week, you're not going to be hearing anything because it's Christmas Eve. And by God, I'm spending time with my family, and I think you should do the same thing. 
And I'm probably going to do the same for New Year's Eve. That looks like the plan right now. But come January, I'm working on lying at four shows. January is the month we talk about abortion. And I have got four guests here. We're just working out how the tampons going to be on. So next month, prepare to talk about abortion. For now, let's get back to Dr. Jeffrey Weinman talking about the book Paul, the ancient letter writer. Now, your book did open my eyes a lot to looking at the introductions and conclusions and such in totally different ways. One that really stands out when you talk about introduction is Galatians, for instance. Mm-hmm. You read and say, Paul and all the saints with me send greeting, something like that. Now, that's a nice little generic opening there, but really, uh, Paulism, Paul's in essence stacking the deck in his favor a bit, isn't he? Well, um, I think it's important first to remind the readers, you know, of um, of what's going on, uh, what's the historical context, uh, what's the, in German they used to say the sitzum leben, the situation and life of the Galatian letters, because then um, when Paul change, changes something or deviates something, then maybe we'll better appreciate why that happened. So, so very quickly, let's uh, remind everyone that in the Galatian letters, uh, Paul's well. Paul's in a in, a, in an uncomfortable spot. Uh, he's uh, pretty upset with um, the Galatians because um, people from people from outside, people claiming to represent the apostles, the so-called pillars, the head boys in Jerusalem, have come in and they have one a bad gospel, which Paul says is no gospel at all, and two they've got a bad attitude toward Paul. And it's the second one I think we're going to talk about just right now for a moment. And that is, they were claiming that Paul wasn't really a legitimate apostle. He was only an apostle wannabe. Uh, You know, he wasn't really one of the 12. And he did all this damage in the early days persecuting the church. And he only got the gospel secondhand when he spent time with uh, Peter and James. And and so uh, Paul is writing to a church where opponents are already in those churches and have kind of largely won those churches over to this gospel that, again, Paul says is no gospel at all, so they've got a bad gospel, but they also have a bad attitude toward Paul. And the the, the issue here for Paul isn't one of vanity. It's not like, uh, you know, Paul is upset because somebody is dissing him and somehow undermining his credibility and not really giving him the respect that he's due. No, Paul knows, and, and, and any preacher and teacher today knows this, that the, that the message is intimately connected with the messenger. And if there are questions about the messenger, well, that obviously entails or undermines maybe the validity, the integrity of the message. So Paul is concerned at the very beginning of the Galatian letter and throughout the Galatian letter to reestablish his credentials as a true blooded, a, a, a fully legitimate and a authorized uh, apostle. Now, if you know that, then you get to the opening of Galatians. Now, of course, most readers just kind of smoke on by the opening of a letter because, one, uh, we're not very careful readers. We're, <laughs> we're too much in a hurry, and we don't slow down and think carefully enough about the text. Two, we probably have some kind of assumption, a wrong assumption, that Not only the closings of a letter aren't important, but therefore also the openings of a letter aren't that important. Those are just some niceties, you know, to begin with, and they aren't really significant. So so we have to kind of slow down. And then if you compare Paul's opening in Galatians with all of his other openings, right, then you'll better see what he's, if he's doing anything unique over here, if he's doing anything that's different. Uh, and, and the trouble is, if you don't know what he does in other letters, how in the world will you be able to tell that he's done something different in Galatians? So, so right away, if you know what Paul normally does, you can tell that he, in Galatians he does something different. So he starts off by saying Paul, that's normal, beginning with his name. Secondly, he says an apostle, he gives him a title, that's normal, he does that throughout his letters. But then, instead of saying, as he normally does, of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he's got two negatives. He says, I'm an apostle, one, not from men, 
nor secondly, through a man, and then he contrasts the two negatives with the two positive, positives, but through Christ Jesus and from God the Father. And then he says, the Father who raised him from the dead, that's something else. And then you also highlighted the fact, he says, and all the brothers with me. He includes co-senders. So there are, there are a couple of things uh, that are unique here. And first are those two negatives. It's not by accident that Paul says, not from men, nor through a man. Why? Because he's addressing congregations where they claimed exactly that, that he was only an apostle who got his apostleship from men, namely the, you know, the, uh, the 12 apostles, nor through a man, right? Either uh, Peter as the head apostle or maybe James, the brother of Jesus. And Paul clearly gives a, a preemptive strike before he gets to the body of the letter where he asserts the fact that, wait a minute, uh, and by the way, your readers should then contrast what he says in, uh, in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, when he finally gets to the body of the letter. What does he say? The very first words out of his mouth in the body of the letter is, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel uh, which was preached by me is not a man-made gospel. And he says, I did not receive it from a man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so you can tell that Paul knows where he's going later in the letter. He knows that he's going to defend the fact that he got his gospel, he got his apostleship, not from any people, but he got it directly from Jesus Christ himself. In other words, he's a fully authorized, legitimate apostle whose gospel by the Galatians, ought to be accepted. And so it's not so innocent that he begins by saying in the letter opening, not from men, nor through a man. And then secondly, the reference to all the brothers with me. That's kind of interesting. It's not unusual for Paul to have a co-sender. So Paul typically has something like Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and so forth, and Timothy, the brother, something like that. So it's not unusual for Paul to have a co-sender. But what's unusual here is he makes his co-sender as broad as possible. He says, all the brothers with me. Now, if you think about it for a minute, what are you saying, Paul? Every single Christian where you are is kind of like writing this letter with you? Is that what you're claiming? And what Paul is really claiming is all the Christians with me recognize, all the brothers and sisters with me acknowledge that my apostleship is not from men nor through a man, but through Christ Jesus and from God the Father. And so there is a, a, a kind of a challenge to the Galatians now. Are you going to reject Paul, the Paul who's been accepted by all the rest of the Christians everywhere else? And so this change is not so innocent, but it's part of Paul's persuasive strategy to reassert his apostolic uh, authority. Mm -hmm. And something else interesting about Galatians, which is rather, there's not really a whole lot of well-wishing going on. This is one ticked-off apostle writing this letter. He just jumps straight into, uh, here's how angry I am with you all now. Right. Well, um, that too is striking because, um, remember I said earlier to your audience that all letters of the day typically had at least three parts. They had a, a, an opening, a body, and a closing. And what's striking is Paul has four parts. So between the opening and the body of the letter, he adds what scholars today often call a thanksgiving section. And that name comes from the opening verb uh, that's found uh, almost all the time in Paul's letters. He says, um, after he says grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, after he finishes that opening greeting, he doesn't begin the body of the letter, but he begins by saying, I give thanks, or sometimes he uses the plural, we give thanks. And there's a rather long thanksgiving section. And um, that is a kind of unique, uh, and it's interesting to think about uh, the purpose and the function of that thanksgiving section. You may want to ask me about that. But right now, I want your audience to be struck by how in Galatians, this is different. So, Every other letter, uh, Paul, before he begins the body of the letter, he begins by saying, I give thanks to God for you guys, or we give thanks to God for you readers, for these good things that you are doing, or more accurately in Paul's theology, what God is doing in and through you. And so it makes it even more significant 
when Paul begins in 1.6 by saying, I am astonished, I'm amazed, I am flabbergasted, I'm ticked off that you're so quickly, you know, deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, not that there's another gospel at all. So in other words, the situation is so serious in uh, the Galatian churches that Paul can't find anything to give thanks to God about. And, um, and so some scholars actually catch this, but they wrongly say that Paul has begun the body of the letter here. No, he hasn't. What Paul hasn't done instead is he's replaced. He hasn't deleted the Thanksgiving section. He's replaced the Thanksgiving section with what might be called an astonishment section. And it's clear evidence uh, to his readers then, and now the trick is whether our modern readers have eyes to see that, that Paul, again, is quite angry. And it isn't like, again, he's ticked off like in an inappropriate way. Paul is concerned about their very salvation because the gospel that they've bought into, he says, is no gospel at all. And in fact, he says, even if we came with this other gospel, or even if an angel from heaven came with this other gospel that is no gospel at all, he says, let that person be cursed. And he says it not once, but twice. So, so this is very strong language because it's a very strong situation. And of course, later on in the letter, Paul will say in chapter three, oh, foolish Galatians. And then, you know, it's tampered down in some modern translations. But Paul says, you know, those people pushing circumcision, he says, I wish they go all the way and castrate themselves. Uh, you know, uh, so 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 Paul is angry in this letter, and uh, you, you know this is this is on the, there are other letters where there are lots of warm fuzzies between the the apostle Paul and his readers, but this is uh, on the far end of the spectrum where things are cold and frosty, and uh, there are all kinds of clues, all kinds of letter writing clues which tip off and signal his anger. And some of them are found in the letter opening, and you just asked me about the Thanksgiving section, and a bunch of them are found, uh, and I mentioned a few in the body of the letter, and, and if we had time, and you may ask me about others, lots of clues in the letter closing of Galatians 2. It's a marvelously written letter closing for a variety of reasons, too. Yeah, I do wish we did have that way of time, but now we need to get to the part where we're talking about uh, how people can support the ministry we're listening to right now. Deeper Barters is, of course, supported by people like you, and we're near the end of the year. So it's time to think about end-of-the-year giving right now. Now, if you go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, there is a link there. And if you click that link because you want to donate, it will take you to a different site. That's the uh, site of Risen Jesus, the ministries, the ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. Those are my in-laws as listeners know, and they handle our fundraising because Debbie is a financial guru, who's an accountant and knows how to handle this very well. So you make a donation, and then you get in touch with Mike and Debbie or Allie and myself and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. It will be tax deductible. And if you can be a monthly donor... That is something we are so grateful to you for. We we need that so much from you. Now you can also go buy some ebooks on Amazon by people written or co-written. Written is a creed for the ages, the apostles' creed in today's Christian. And then co-written are books such as Groundless, looking at Dan Barker's book, Godless, God and Natural Disasters, Debate with an Atheist. And one of my favorites, Defining Inerrancy, which I think is going to come into play a lot more since Mike's time to book out. And that's one where we look at, short, at what inerrancy really is and how to properly define it and in turn defend it. And if you buy any of those, yeah, I'm going to get some small portion of that. And then you can also, one more way, is by buying jewelry. There's a link there on our site. You click buy it. And you buy it through Lena Kester of Premier Jewelers, and whatever you buy, you just let her know, 25% of what you purchase goes to us. So, guys, you might not have discovered this yet, but women seem to really like jewelry. So, if you want to get something special for your life, for the lady in your life, you can buy some jewelry so you can make up that screw-up that you recently did in the past. 
or you can make up that screw up that you know you're going to make in the near future. All those are ways you can support us. And if you can't do those, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I love to see them. They're, they're so heartwarming every time I see them. Um, Dr. Bynum, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Um, no, I, I, I mean, uh, if they want to donate to Calvin Theological Seminary mm-hmm. uh, in the training of uh, pastors, then that, of course, would be appreciated. Uh, but I'll let readers uh, reflect on uh, the ministries that you've mentioned. And uh, I'm thinking that's the calvinseminary.edu. Um, that's right. Calvinseminary.edu is uh, the website, and it's easy to track down who we are, and um, you can see my name among the faculty, and uh, you, you're welcome to contact me. That's one way you can contact me easily. Now, we have to leap right back into the program now. You've talked about the body. Now, most of us look at the body. Today, we're just looking, what's the content of the body? What should we be looking for in the body besides just the content? So, uh, what you're talking about is... Um, I make a distinction between the content of the biblical text and the form of the biblical text. Mm-hmm. In other words, the difference between what the Bible says and then secondly, how the Bible says it. There are lots of ways, there are lots of ways to say something, and why did the biblical writers say it this way and not another way? And so the, the, the bodies of Paul's letters are, are more varied and diverse than the opening, the thanksgiving, and the closing. And that's understandable because in the body of the letter, Paul will be addressing, you know, whatever the particular church problems are. And so the problems in the church in Corinth are different than the problems in Thessalonica and different from the, you know, in Philippi and so forth. But there are a lot of, um, again, epistolary conventions or stereotyped expressions or other um, epistolary conventions found in the body of the letter that would be important for modern readers uh, to recognize. Because uh, it's not so much to just see them and then, you know, it might be impressive to family and friends and say, aha, that's such and such. But the more important question is, what function does that epistolary convention have, right? And that gives you a better window into Paul's purpose or meaning. So, for example, um, uh, biblical scholars uh, have noticed that, um, that Paul uses this formula, this expression, uh, that it can be translated different ways. In Greek, it's always the same word, but in English, it's the verb to appeal or the verb to urge or the verb to ask or exhort. And regardless of how you translate it, it's important to contrast that with the verb to command. In other words, um, uh, biblical scholars have noticed that in the ancient world, if, if a writer had a good relationship with their audience, uh, a relationship in which the speaker, the writer, I guess I should say, could anticipate that the audience would accept what they're about to write. There's no need to be heavy-handed and say, I command you. Instead, they would choose the softer, more user-friendly, I appeal to you, or sometimes it's translated, I urge you, I ask you, uh, something like that. One of my favorite examples of that is Philemon, actually. Yeah. So... Well, there, in case uh, uh, some of your, some in your audience are a little skeptical about what I'm saying, or maybe they doubt whether Paul knows this difference between commanding and appealing, well, uh, we know that he does because in the, letter, uh, little, in the little letter of Philemon, um, in the beginning of the body of the letter, so after he finishes the Thanksgiving section, he uh, begins the body of the letter, I think, in verses 8 and 9 and 10. I'm just quickly looking it up. I'm pretty sure I have that uh, right. And uh, there it is, yeah, 8, 9, and 10. And he says, although I could be bold in Christ and command you to do what you not to do, yet because of love's sake, I appeal to you. I, Paul, uh, an old man and also a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. So Philemon 8, 9, and 10 is a great example of how Paul knows and operates with the distinction between commanding and appealing. 
And so Paul here um, says, I'm not going to be heavy-handed and command you to do something. Instead, not once, but twice. And on the basis of love, I'm going to, in a more gentle way, appeal uh, something from you with regard to uh, this runaway slave of yours, Onesimus. So that's one example of the knowledge between the two. So getting back to Galatians, which you mentioned a minute ago, it's not surprising that you don't find the appeal formula in Galatians, right? The appeal formula is in where, you, where you have a good relationship with your audience, where you're optimistic they'll listen to you and do what you're saying. And so that's not the case in Galatians, and so it's not surprising that you don't have that formula, you don't have that epistolary convention in that particular letter. So that's just one little example of how, again, if you have eyes to see these uh, stereotype expressions or letter writing conventions, and more importantly, you know what function they have, then you can become, I think, a, a, a better reader at picking up the nuances of the letter, right? What Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is intending to communicate to the ancient audience. And then that helps us think about now how do we also um, uh, express and understand that for uh, the contemporary audience today. So there are multiple, multiple examples of these kind of things in the body of the letter. And um, it's just good for modern readers, uh, again, to, uh, to know about them so that you can discern them in the letter. Do you have another one you wanted to talk about? Or I could pick another example. Uh, you can pick any example that you want to. Well, here's another example. I, in the book, I talk about a confidence formula, a confidence formula. So in Philemon, you know, it's at the very end of the letter, Paul says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you will do even more than I say. That's Philemon verse 21. Now, again, if you're a sleepy reader, or if you're not really an alert reader, this is just going to go right over your head. But if you're instead more sensitive to not just what Paul says, but how he says it, or as you said earlier, not just the content, but the form in which that content comes to us, you might, you might catch the idea that Paul uses here a confidence formula, because that puts pressure, indirect pressure on the audience to do what, uh, what Paul is confident about. Parents do the same thing themselves. Let's imagine I have a, uh, a teenage son. He's not a teenage son anymore, but let's imagine, you know, my teenage son has uh, two options. You know, he can go to a party on Friday night, or he can help out at a church function on uh, Friday night. And and then I come to him and I say, now, son, you know, you're, you're, you're getting old enough to make these decisions by yourself, right? So mom and dad are going to let you pick. And then I, I end by saying, but we're confident you're going to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. Now, he probably wouldn't like me saying that, even though I'm praising him, because it puts pressure on him to do not what he wants to do, but which would probably go to the party, but to do what he really ought to do, and that is go to the church function. And so when Paul says, confident of your obedience, that puts indirect pressure on the rich slave owner to, uh, to do what Paul has been asking uh, in, in the letter. And there are a couple of other places where Paul strategically uses what we today could call the confidence formula. So I've given you just two quick ones. One is the appeal formula, the difference between appealing and commanding. And now I just gave, secondly, another one, the confidence formula. And uh, as I said earlier, there are many, many other examples that uh, we could uh, talk about. Yeah, I, what I'd like to encourage you is if you want to see another way that five, this is so important, it really pushes on me so much to encourage people. If you want to understand so much of the Bible, study honor and shame in the ancient world, because everything being said speaks in terms of honor and shame somehow. And once you get that, you will start seeing things that you would not see anywhere else in the Bible. I think that's true, uh, Nick. Um, We live in America, I must say, in a shameless society. So we tend not to be um, very sensitive to that. But if you go to the Middle East or the Far East, even today... The whole business of shame and honor is of great, great importance. Mm-hmm. So um, it's important when you read the biblical text to have that as a dynamic where um, Paul is writing something either to, to give greater honor or greater shame to the readers. And, and they would feel that 
either positive or negative pressure uh, a lot more quickly and easily than we tend to. Again, because unfortunately we here in uh, North America are kind of shameless. Uh, if any listeners are interested in hearing more about that, I recommend going through our archive. We've had Randy Richards coming on about his book, A Corrupt Misreading Scripture of Western Eyes, and we've had Jackson Wu on his book, One Gospel for All Nations, and one on Michigan, his book, The Global Gospel. All of these talking about honor and shame and how important they are to understanding the Bible. Now, we have to. As we get closer to the closing bow show, we have to start talking about letter closings. And like you said, these are usually ignored. The only exception I can think of is being involved in apologetics and then we do some counter-cult stuff. Is saying, hey, if you go to 2 Corinthians 13, you can see a Trinitarian benediction. We can use that when Jehovah's Witnesses come by. Somehow, I think we should probably be looking for a little bit more, as important as a Trinitarian benediction is. Maybe there's more we could be seeing. Right. Well, uh, that, this gets then to the heart of that uh, PhD thesis, which was then published years ago. And, and uh, of course, that's also found in the chapter on my new book, which deals with Paul's uh, letter closing. So um, the two best examples, if uh, I wanted to illustrate the significance for closings, would be the ending of Galatians and the ending of First Thessalonians. Since we talked already about um, Galatians, maybe... I could say at least a few things uh, about that, again, just to kind of illustrate the point and maybe whet the appetite of uh, some who might want to uh, follow it up. So, so the letter closing is in Galatians. It begins at chapter 6, verse 11, and we can see that all of the letter closing is an autograph because Paul says, see with what large letters I am writing to you in my own hand. And so this goes back to something we talked a little earlier in the show, how uh, obviously Paul had used the secretary in the, uh, in the letter up to this point, up to chapter 6, verse 10. And now he's signaling to his Galatian readers that now he's taken over. And unusually, not just taking over in the last verse, right, not just with a kind of a final greeting, but he's got quite a bit of, so to say, he's got like one last shot at them. And that's another indication that he is um, he's concerned. And then the large letters is interesting, too. This is like uh, modern bold. Um, uh, maybe your readers will like uh, my, uh, my mother-in-law is um, on Facebook all the time, and she doesn't know, as a somewhat older person, all the, uh, the niceties of uh, writing online. Anyway, I guess she was writing uh, uh, messages to her grandkids uh, and others on Facebook, and she had the capital the cap locks on. Oh, yes. Okay, and so all of her words were in block letters. And then I was struck how one of her granddaughters said, Grandma, turn off your capital lock. You're shouting all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, in today's world, if you use capital letters, that's like for emphasis or you're yelling or you're shouting. And in a similar way, when Paul says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you, that's not because of his uh, thorn in the flesh or his bad eyesight or his arthritis. That's, that's kind of drawing attention. You know, this is like bold. This is, this is important. Um, here's, a, here's, a, here's another little one I kind of like. Um, the, the peace benediction in the closing is very strategic. So Paul's letters in the closing... Has, a, has an echo of something in the opening. Uh, your readers will remember earlier uh, in, our, in this broadcast, we talked about it, how Paul Christianizes the letter openings. Uh, he says, you have grace and peace. Well, at the end of the letter, he inverts them. He typically has peace, and then he says a few more things, and the very last thing in his letter, the very last thing in the letter closing is and the grace benediction. So Paul has in his letter closings both a peace benediction and a grace benediction. What's striking about the grace benediction in Galatians, and it's found in um, uh, verse uh, 16, is one, it's a conditional greeting, a conditional blessing. In other words, uh, Paul doesn't say that everyone will receive peace uh, or peace and mercy. He says, peace and mercy upon all who walk according to this canon or according to this rule. 
It's the only letter where Paul has a conditional aspect. It would be like you being at a church service, and at the end of the service, the pastor puts his hands up. He's going to give you a blessing before you go, and he says something like this. He says, on everybody who listens carefully and does what I have said in this sermon, grace and peace be to you from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I I suspect you've never heard a pastor say that, right? Well, this is kind of what Paul is doing, and it again reflects the, uh, the, um, uh, the frustration and the concern that Paul has. And because he says he knows that not everyone in Galatians is walking according to the right canon, according to the right yardstick. And so he says, only on those who walk according to the canon, the yardstick, the gospel, as I preached and as I've reminded you in this letter, peace will only be on them. And so that's, that's kind of striking that uh, Paul has adapted that in this letter. And that's another sign of his uh, concern and frustration. And that phrase, the Israel of God, I better not talk about that because that's exegetically complex. But you know, that's, that's a striking reference he makes there. And that also has something to do with what's gone earlier uh, in uh, the letter. But I'm going to stop here and see if you have a, a different or another question yet. Well, unfortunately, that point where we do have to wrap things up, though, you said now, some of you might be thinking, it's too bad it's only went on for an hour because there's so much more we could talk about. Yes, there is, and that's why you need to buy the book. If you go on Amazon right now, the Kindle version is $13.99, and the paperback is $24.97, and this was released pretty much just a month ago, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It just came out uh, maybe a month or two ago. And people, it, it is worth reading. If I have someone on my show, I think that book is worth reading, okay? Now, Dr. Rama, do you have a, a website, a blog, a way people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Yes. But before I do that, let me just say that when I wrote this book, I intended it to be a user-friendly book. In other words... It's, uh, you know, I try to avoid technical language, or if I did, I made sure to explain it. Also, the book, the book is chock full of examples. So it's not just telling you in theory, but it, it applies this way of reading to specific text. And so I'd like to believe that, um, you know, there are lots of ways in which the modern reader can not only easily understand it, but, you know... It'll, it'll address uh, specific passages from Paul where you can see firsthand whether it's, uh, whether it's valuable, this approach, or whether it has a payoff. So that's, I, that's, I do agree with all of that also. I mean, the book is very much uh, user-friendly. The average layman can get a lot out of it. Well, thank you. Uh, and then uh, um, if I could direct people, I have a website, and the website has, well, information about my tours, these biblical tours that I lead. It's got information about... Um, articles, both popular and academic, that I've written. Many of them you can just download in a PDF file. I've also got a category of videos, and so some teaching videos, some other explanatory videos on topics that I'm sure your readers would find uh, relevant for their life and interesting. And so that is simply the title of my name.com. So it's jeffwyma.com, and make sure you spell that right. So it's J-E-F-F. W-E-I-M-A dot com, jeffwyma.com, and uh, I'd be happy to see um, more hits on, on that website. And again, uh, there is some information there that I'm sure your readers would find interesting and maybe even profitable just for their own personal edification, or maybe if they're thinking about teaching on something or if they're investigating some biblical topic. Uh, then that would be helpful for them. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any uh, final words you'd like to leave to the audience today? Well, um, also, just that uh, my email address is at that website, and so if I've said something that uh, has piqued your interest, if I've said something that maybe got you angry, uh, I'd like to encourage you just to track me down uh, and send me uh, your reflection or your question in an email, and I'd be happy to hear from you and then uh, respond. But uh, I want to thank uh, you, Nick, for uh, taking the time to read my book and uh, to highlight it. And I thank the readers for uh, listening. And I hope that um, that uh, they and others will find this book profitable. And uh, the real goal is to help people to become better 
hearers of a portion of God's word and then allow the spirit also to empower us not just to be hearers but also doers of that word. I'd like to remind everyone that we are probably not going to have any shows in the next couple of weeks because, you know, it's uh, it's holiday time. Here's your family. But next month, we're going to be talking about portion. Uh, Dr. Rama, thank you for coming on the show. We'd love to see you here again sometime. Well, thanks, Nick. It's been fun, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to do this again. Well, for now, I'm Nick Peters, and until next time, I am signing off. <laughs>